of all the people uh, surrounding the birth of Christ, I'm, I'm most intrigued by the wise men. I'm always amazed when I think about how God used a, a star in the heavens to announce the birth of his son to these, these Gentiles from the east, who then set out on this journey to discover and to worship this Jewish child. And today we continue on a, a similar journey. Like the wise men before us, we're seeking to discover and we're seeking to worship this child. Now so far, over the past four weeks, well three weeks, this is week four, we've seen the announcement of his birth uh, to Joseph, his adoptive father, to Mary, his mother, and to some shepherds who are nearby. And those announcements have helped us to see who this child is. We've seen that, G, that this child, who was born in a stable, laid in a manger, a feeding trough over 2,000 years ago, is Emmanuel, God with us. That He existed for all eternity as God. And then in the, the fullness of time, He willingly became fully human. God as one of us. Why? That's what we saw last week. This child is God for us. God became a man that He might become our Savior. Saving us from our sins and saving us to eternal life in His presence. So that's been our journey so far. Or at least a, a summary of it. And today we continue by looking, we continue on this journey by turning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, first, first book in the New Testament, where we find God's announcement to the wise men. Now before we read this uh, announcement, let me ask you a question. How many of you have a, a nativity scene of some kind somewhere in your home? Yeah, quite a few of us. Last Sunday, uh, my wife and I, Christina, hosted the annual staff and elder Christmas party. And one of the games we played involved counting the nativities in our home, walking around the house and counting the nativities. There were 22. So uh, clearly, we enjoy nativities. Now, many nativity scenes include the three wise men, right? It's very convenient to show, that, that they show up at the same time as the shepherds. This means that everyone can, uh, can together uh, be around Jesus, and it makes for a beautiful picture, right? I have a picture here. That's one of our 22 nativities. But the wise men probably didn't arrive uh, until several months or even up to two years after Jesus' birth. And nowhere does the Bible say that there were three of them. They gave three gifts, which we'll talk about, and that's why the tradition of three so we don't know exactly when they arrive or how many there were. But we do know they came to seek and to worship a king. That's what we discover. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, at this time Herod, this, this guy Herod was king over the Jewish people, over that region known as Palestine. Romans were in control. Herod wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and he had been appointed by the Romans to, to, to keep the peace. So Herod's king, and, and behold, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw this star when it rose, and, 
and have come to worship him. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding these wise men from the east. That word wise men in the Greek is, is magi. That's why, you know, we call them magi. And it, it referred to people who practice such things as astrology or dream interpretation. They studied sacred writings of all kinds. They pursued wisdom and, and, and magic. So these wise guys were clearly not Jews. They weren't descendants of, of Abraham. But they were probably familiar with Old Testament prophecy through their study of sacred writings and their interaction with Jews in Babylon in the east. The Jews had been uh, in the diaspora, had been spread out through all kinds of different places in the known world. And so they had prob- maybe heard Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob and a, a scepter shall rise out of Israel that shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheath. The Jews believed this prophecy pointed to their Messiah King. And so God uses a star to announce the coming of, of this child's birth to Gentile wise men. And in verse 3 we read, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He had had a problem with the fact that these guys were looking for the king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. I guess the word had spread. What's going on here? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired. Herod inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Herod is, is troubled, news of another king, a potential rival. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes. These are the guys that know the Old Testament. That's what they do. They study. The scribes are the ones that copy down the, 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 the Old Testament over and over again. He calls them together to tell him where the Christ, where the Scripture says the Christ, the Messiah, would be born. And these guys know the prophecy given to Micah in chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O town of Bethlehem, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now Herod knows that the Christ, the king of the Jews, will be born in Bethlehem. Now what does he do with his information? Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod gets this more information. Bethlehem, he finds out when they had seen the star. He does some calculations, and he sends them on their way. Charges them to, to report back to him so he can worship this new king as well. Now we know Herod isn't interested in worshiping this new king. In fact, he'll try to kill the child. That's what Matthew records right after this. If you go down into verse 13 through 18 of Matthew chapter 2, that's the, that's the story there. Herod orders that all the male children, two years and younger, in the area of Bethlehem be killed. So the wise men at this point are unaware of Herod's wickedness. And in verse 9 we read, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So apparently the star is moving them, moving them along. It leads them to the child. And what do they do when they arrive? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When the wise men finally find the child, they're overjoyed. They rejoice. They found what they're searching for. They've been on this journey and they've discovered the king of the Jews. They rejoice. They worship him and they give him uh, three gifts. Frankincense. It's, it's incense that you burn at the sacrificial altar. Myrrh is a costly perfume used in an, as an antiseptic or as, uh, for embalming. And gold is uh, it's gold. It's valuable stuff. All these gifts were expensive. And they pointed to the greatness and the value that these guys saw in this child, the one who received them. These were not gifts given to a peasant child born in a feeding trough. These were gifts for a king. This child is God. This child is human. This child is a savior. And this child is a king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. He's the Christ, the Messiah, who will deliver his people. This child is the king. When we study the life of Christ in the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, if you study his life, this is something we often don't focus on. We rightly see this humble servant, one who submits to the will of his father, one who willingly sacrifices his life, willingly goes to the cross and dies for our sins, one who saves us. But there's another side to this child. Yes, he's the suffering servant who saves, but he's also a king. And not just the king of the Jews. In the book of Revelation, we read this. On his robe, on Jesus' robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This child, Jesus Christ, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. What child is this? He's the king and the Lord over all. I want us to turn to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We looked there a couple weeks ago. We saw in verses 6 and 8, we saw that uh, Jesus' divinity, we saw his humanity. Now we turn to verses 9 through 11, where we find this is this beautiful description that Paul gives of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christ, Paul begins in verse 9, therefore, and he's hearkening back to what he's just written in verses 6 through 8, which we've seen over the past couple weeks, that Jesus has always existed as God, that he's God, but that he humbly set aside his divine rights and became fully human so that he could go to the cross in our place, so he could die for the sins of humanity. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus accomplished, God declares that Jesus is Lord over all. We Christians say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. But do we understand what that really means? And maybe more importantly, do we live our lives based on what it means? What it means theologically and what it means practically 
in our daily lives. And the first thing it means is that Jesus is exalted over all. Verse 9 again, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. That phrase, God is highly exalted, literally means God super exalted Him or super eminently exalted Him. God exalted Him to the highest possible place, the utmost position. There's nothing above Christ. Now you might be thinking, well, Jesus was God. We we looked at that in, in week one. Four weeks ago, he's already God. Isn't God already above all else? Isn't God already highly exalted over all? We know there's nothing greater than God. He's the creator of all things. God has no room for improvement, no room for advancement. So how can Jesus, at a a point in time, be highly exalted by God? And yes, as God, Jesus has always been exalted over all. But remember, Jesus became fully human. God as one of us. He became a man. He was resurrected as a man. He ascended into heaven as a man. He took on humanity at a point in time, but His human nature is with Him forever. He is and will be fully God and fully man throughout all eternity. And it's this human nature of Jesus that is highly exalted by God. In a sense, God is bringing the human nature of Christ into alignment with His divine nature. And God bestows on Him the name that is above every name. And what that means is that God exalted Jesus to such an extent, to such a high position, that His name, Jesus, the name of a man, which means God saves, is a name that's over all others. There's nothing higher. There's nothing above Him. There has never been nor never will be anyone greater than Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the highest. There's none higher. And He shares His throne with no one. And what should be our response to this? What should be our response to the One who's exalted over all? To the One who has the name above every name? Well, I think our response is pictured beautifully by the wise men. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Our first response to Christ must be one of worship. To bow down before him. That's that's that word. That word worship has that idea of bowing down. We've talked about this before. Worship is bowing down. Praise is lifting up. Worship is bowing down before our Lord. He's exalted over all. He's over us. And we must worship Him. We must bow before Him and offer Him words of praise and honor. And second, we must offer Him gifts. The wise men brought Him valuable gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now, many believe these gifts that the wise men brought were used by uh, Joseph and Mary to finance their escape uh, from Herod into Egypt. So they were very practical gifts needed. But what gifts can we offer Jesus today? What practical gifts can we bring to the one who owns everything, to the one who's exalted above all? I think the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 gives us the answer. 
verse 1, he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What can we give Jesus? Only one thing. Ourselves, our lives, our bodies as a a living sacrifice, who we are and what we do. This is the acceptable and proper response to the one who's exalted over all, to the one who's exalted over us, to give ourselves to Christ, to live our lives for Christ. Because He's over us. He's over all. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the identity of this baby in the manger. This one we celebrate on Christmas. And because God has exalted him over all, because he's Lord over all, it means that he, Jesus, has authority over all. Paul continues the description of the Lordship of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So that the name, so he's been given the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's all the knees, by the way. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the heart of these two verses is the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord is is the Greek word kurios. And it means supreme in authority. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus has absolute authority over all. He said it himself just prior to his his physical departure from this earth in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. As he's given the the great commission, he says, and Jesus said to, to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. How much authority does Jesus have? All of it. How much authority does that mean we have? None of it. Now I want you to think about his authority as it relates to us on two levels. First of all, last week we saw that Jesus has the authority, and that word authority includes the power, the ability, uh, the essence of who he is. Jesus has the authority to save. He has authority to save us from our sin and to save us to eternal life with him. He alone is Lord over sin and salvation and death and life. No one else in all history can make the claim to have defeated sin. Is there anyone in this room who's conquered sin completely? Rhetorical question. I know the answer. Is there anyone in all of history, any of the greatest religious teachers who's, who's without sin? Not one of them can claim to be Lord over sin. Can anyone claim to be Lord, not over just over sin, but over death? Who's conquered death apart from Jesus? Absolutely no one. He alone has the authority to save us from sin and from death. The author of Hebrews writes sort of how he does this. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Jesus became human. He took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus took on humanity so that he could destroy him who holds the power of death. He conquered Satan 
at the cross. Death. We need, no longer need to fear. I know at Christmas, especially for many families, it can be a painful time. Remembering loved ones who've passed away. The pain of death is present and real. But I want to uh, just remind you, encourage you, that, that in Christ we have one who's Lord over all. He's Lord over death. He has the authority over death. Therefore, if you know Him, you need not fear it. Who else has authority and ability to save you from your sin? Who else has the authority and ability to save you from eternal death? Who else has the authority and the ability to give you eternal life in the presence of God? No one else. Christ alone has authority to save. But He not only has authority to save, Jesus has authority to rule. He's the owner. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. Paul writes in, uh, of Jesus, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is over all. He has authority over all, to rule over all. He has authority to save, and He has the authority to rule. And the thing is, the thing I want us to see is that that authority to save and that authority to rule cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. We try to separate them. But we need to understand it's impossible. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. We need to be clear what child this is. We can have the misconception that we can receive Jesus as our Savior. We can uh, take His authority to save but not submit to Him as Lord. Not come under His authority to rule. So we walk the aisle and we we pray a prayer and we say, I've asked Jesus to save me from my sins. Then we live our lives uh, contradictory to His will. Our lives look like uh, everyone else's around us. There's no difference. There's no evidence of Christ's rule in our lives. We don't submit to Him as Lord, but we say He is our Savior. And I want to be really clear at this point. This is not an option that the Bible gives. We cannot separate who Jesus is. I'll take Him as Savior, but I won't take Him as... Nobody says that, by the way. But we act like it, don't we? We cannot use Him as our Savior and refuse to submit to His Lordship. He is Savior and Lord. That's who He is. You cannot receive Jesus as your Savior if you do not submit to Him as your Lord. Notice I said submit to Him as your Lord. We don't make Jesus the Lord of our lives. I mean, I've probably said that myself. Yes, I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Well, I didn't. He is the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of all things. The question is not, have you or have I made Jesus the Lord of my life? The question is, have you submitted your life to His Lordship? In the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, have you bowed your knee to His Lordship? Have you confessed with your tongue that Christ is Lord? Because the truth of Scripture is, one day every knee will bow. We just read it. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is the supreme authority over all. The real question is, will you bow now? Or will you bow when it's too late? 
When I was in high school, I attended uh, Calvary Chapel of Riverside, now Harvest Christian Fellowship. And I, I'll never forget how Greg Laurie put, Laurie put this. He said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Either you will submit to him now and say with joy in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord. Or one day after your death, when you face his judgment, you will say with regret and bitterness and sadness, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all. He's King and Lord over you and me. The only question is, will you today willingly submit to his lordship in your life? Now, what does that submission look like? That's our final point this morning, submitting to the lordship of Christ. Have you submitted, are you submitting to Christ's lordship in your life, in your daily life, in your walk, in what you do? Not have you accepted Christ as your savior, not have you prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into your heart, not have you intellectually believed in Christ, believed in the message of Christmas, James says, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know everything we've talked about over this past four weeks. The demons know that Jesus is God. The demons know that Jesus became human. The demons know that Jesus is a Savior. And the demons even know that Jesus is the Lord. But they refuse to submit to His Lordship. So what does it mean to submit to Christ's Lordship? I remember when I first understood my need to submit. I prayed the prayer of salvation uh, when I was 13. But I had never really given Christ control of my life. I was still doing what I thought was best for me. Now part of that involved, I'd go to church, I'd read my Bible sometimes, I'd even pray. But when it came down to it, I was still making the decisions in my life. I was still living as I wanted to live. I was still doing what I wanted to do. But when I was 18, I had the privilege of going to a a conference put on by Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a Christmas conference. It was right after Christmas. Kansas City. And on the first night of that conference, Billy Graham spoke on the need to make Jesus, you know, he's usually got these uh, altar call sort of messages. Well, here, we're mostly people that would have said we're Christians. And that, that night he spoke on making Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives. And along with... Uh, what were probably hundreds, maybe thousands of other college students, I bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. I understood what I needed to do. I said in my heart, and, and even out loud, that I would relinquish control of my life to Him. I would submit to His authority over my life. I would go where He wanted me to go, and I would do what He wanted me to do. I would trust and obey Him in every area of my life. Now, I'm not saying that from that point forward, I always submitted. But I am saying that I began down a path of submission. I came to understand the truth of of Jesus' lordship in my life. I came to understand that Jesus, not Cliff, was the Lord, the, the leader, the supreme authority in my life. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul helps us understand uh, what submission to Christ as Lord really looks like. And, and you know what? It is totally radical. It's beyond our understanding even. But it's what we're called to. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
Oh, that hurts. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When you submit to Jesus Christ as, as Lord, it means you do not belong to you. You belong to Him. He bought you with a price, and that price was His blood shed on the cross. Uh, he has double rights to you. He's our Lord. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord over all because He created everything. He's the maker of everything. And He has a right to, to do with it as He will. He's the Lord of all because He's the Creator. But He's also our Lord because He's our Savior. He is our Lord and Savior. And they can't be separated. Now, now my submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ led me down a different path than I had planned for myself. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. I had these, you know, again, I'm 18 years old, but I have plans. I have thoughts and ideas of what I'm going to do, and they did not involve what I did. When we give control to Christ, He often gives us a bigger and, and a better plans than we could ever have imagined. For me, big picture, it meant going to the mission field. It meant going to Thailand. It meant becoming a pastor here at Bridges. And I don't know what your submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will mean in your life. It may or may not lead to the mission field. It may or may not lead to full-time Christian ministry. That's up to the Lord. He becomes the supreme authority in your life. But here's what I do know. Here's what's true for all who submit to Christ. He, may, he has different paths for each one of us. But here's what's true for all of us. Two things take place. First, when you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God will be glorified. We've already seen this in some of the verses we've read. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, You are not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That becomes your purpose. When we understand that we are not our own, our response should be submission to Him. And our submission leads to His glory. That's what we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's the result of all this, this, this knee bowing and, and tongue confessing submission to Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father? It's all for the glory of God. It's all for God's glory. As we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord, God is glorified. How is God glorified in our submission? Well, our submission to Christ says that, that He is our Savior. He is our Lord. It says that we trust Him and love Him and believe that, that He has our best interests at heart. When we obey Him, instead of doing what the world or, or sometimes what we want to do uh, around us, when we bow before Him, instead of bowing before uh, the corrupt values of our culture, it says to the world that we believe Christ is exalted above us and has authority over us. And that makes God look good, look great. It brings God glory. So God will receive glory as we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. As you grow in your relationship with Him, as you obey Him, as you love Him, As your love for Him is seen in the world around you, God is glorified. But something else will happen as well. 
God is glorified, but, but you are transformed, you're changed. As you submit, and, and get this, only if you submit to the Lordship of Christ, He works in your heart, in your mind, in your life. He's faithful to transform you into the person He created you to be. Just a couple of verses later, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes to those who submit to Christ. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice it's His good pleasure. Now, His good pleasure, praise the Lord, is also good for us. But it's His good pleasure, and sometimes we don't notice how good it is for us until we go through it. God works in those who submit to His Lordship. I remember from ages 13 to 18, the high school years, you know, I had prayed the prayer, I went to church, there just wasn't much change in my life. You know, I didn't, you know, from age 0 to 12, I didn't do a lot wrong, but age 13 to 18, I did plenty of things I'm not proud of, okay? And that was, you know, I'm a Christian, but I hadn't submitted to the Lordship of Christ. If you struggle with the fact that your life hasn't changed since becoming a Christian, it, it might, you might want to ask yourself if you've truly submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Are you holding on to your own ways still? There's no more important question or decision that you'll ever make. So I, so I want to invite and urge people to, to bow our knees before Christ, to worship Him, to honor Him, to submit to Him. I want to take a moment and just reflect on what it means for us to submit to His Lordship. I want us to ask ourselves, ask yourself first, am I seeking to know Him? Am I seeking to know Him? If I'm going to submit to Him, I need to know Him. And I can only know Him through His Word. That's the way He's chosen to reveal Himself to us, through His Word. Am, am I sub- submitted to Him by seeking to know Him through His Word and through prayer? Ask yourselves, am I living my life for Christ or am I living my life for myself? Am I trusting and obeying Christ? Am I living for God's glory or for my glory? Do I use my, okay, rubber hitting the road here a little bit. Do I use my time, think about your calendar, my talents, things that you're good at, things God is gifted you with, my treasures, your finances? Do I use those things for God's glory, for God's purposes, or for mine? Does the world around me even know that I'm a follower of Christ? Do they know how important Christ is in my life? Or maybe they do know how important Christ is in your life, and it isn't very. Would people say, oh, they make sacrifices for Christ. Now for us, They're not really sacrifices if He's truly the Lord of our lives, but the world around us would see them as sacrifices. Am I submitting to Christ? Or am I submitting to my own sinful desires? Are there areas in your life of continual sin? I don't mean do you sin. We all have struggles and sin, but are there things that just have got a hold of you? Sins of pride or lust or greed or whatever, sins that, that you submit to instead of submitting to Christ. When Christ says, trust me, when you're faced with that temptation and Christ says, trust me, 
Come to me. I will give you strength. Don't fall to this sin. Do I submit to him or do I ignore him and submit to sin? If as you reflect on the answers to these questions, and there's many more, what is the picture that emerges in your life? You say with your words that that Christ is your Lord and Savior. But what do you say with the way you live? If you find yourself over and over living for self, living for your glory, submitting to sin instead of Christ, then you must ask yourself, do I know Christ? Am I submitting to Christ as the Lord of my life? Again, I remember when I was first asked some questions, similar questions to these, I had to admit that that I wasn't submitting to Christ as the Lord of my life. That was reflected in my life. And my response, by the grace of God, was repentance. Turning from these things and giving my life to Christ. And and that can be your response today as well. Over the past four weeks, we have seen what child this is. As we've prepared for Christmas. We've seen who Christ is. We've seen that he's, He's fully God. He's God with us. He's fully human, that He's God is one of us. We've seen that He's our Savior. He's, he's for us. He's God for us. And today we saw that He is our Lord. He is over us. And really, there's only one wise. I mean, speaking of the wise men, you know, there's only wise, there's only one acceptable way to respond to such a child, to such a man, to such a God. So as we conclude our service this morning, I'm just going to pray. And as I pray, I I challenge you to, to literally or in your heart, bow your knee to Christ this morning. Worship Him and give Him complete control of your life. Receive Him as your Savior and submit to Him as your Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You so much for Your coming into our world, but You didn't come just to just to check things out, Lord. You came to to save, to seek and to save the lost. You came as a king. You came as our Lord and Savior, Lord. And I pray, I pray for myself and each person here, Lord, whether we in the past or or even, even continually, daily, are seeking to make you the Lord of our life, I pray that you would strengthen us in that. You would give us the ability to make decisions, to follow after you as our king and our Lord. Lord, and if there are those here today who, who have never made you the Lord of their life, maybe they've, they've thought of you as their Savior, they trusted, they believed that you died on the cross for their sins, but they've never submitted to you as their Lord. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Repent and turn to you and begin the, the incredible journey you have for us. In Christ's name, amen.